Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. This is one of those exciting days when we get to talk to a debut author, which is what we live for here at the Poison Pen. I just really love reading new voices and um, presenting them to you, which means that over 35 years, we have been in the entire career arc of a lot of authors. Since they started here, we kind of keep it up. So maybe that will be the case for Kate Brody. Now, Kate, I, I don't have my arc in front of me. I don't know what I did with it. So normally I would read your little biography, but why don't you tell us who you are since I can't do that? Sure. Um, so my name is Kate Brody. I live in Los Angeles, um, but I'm originally from New Jersey. I have an MFA from NYU and I've um, published some shorter work in LitHub, The Literary Review, Crime Reads, Electric Lit, all the usual suspects. Um, and this is my first book. So what propelled you into writing a novel, which is a lot different than what you've just talked about? Well, I had um, done the kind of standard undergrad workshop to MFA track. So I went into my MFA right after my undergrad, which is think a little unusual um but it meant I was writing a lot of short fiction like that is really I think uh how you cut your teeth in workshop is writing a lot of short fiction and then when I got out of my MFA program uh, I wanted to take a crack at writing a longer thing um so I wrote I wrote one kind of failed manuscript that was my uh, an extension of my thesis project and then put that away. And then Rabbit Hole was um, my second novel length project. So I'm I'm somebody who kind of has to learn by doing. So I have a lot of um, abandoned manuscripts and stories and things like along the way. Well, you're not alone in that. I've talked to legions of authors who have that. The part I always love is that there's this sort of line about, you know, they're really living in a bottom drawer. And I keep thinking, if you truly don't want anyone to see it, you need to burn it. <laughs> you know, um, because otherwise it's going to be like Jane Austen's Juvenilia, that somebody will come along and publish all that stuff that you, you know, think of as failed. That's but true. anyway, um, it's hard to let go. I think the good news is if you have quite a lot of that you do have um chunks or maybe that you can incorporate in more successful manuscripts you know plus you learn by doing so really nothing's wasted for a writer yeah I agree I think uh, when I've taught writing I try to encourage my students to think about think about writing that way that nothing is wasted you're always moving towards something even when it feels I think like failure um, and I, I think I save a lot of work for that reason, hoping that maybe there are chunks in there, but I think just saving it sometimes allows you to psychologically move on because you're telling yourself, you know, I'll come back to this, I'll fix it. Um, and that ability to move on quickly to the next thing, um, is also so important. It's, it's obviously a business that's just rife with a lot of failure and rejection and that that's part of it and you just have to kind of keep marching forward so this is kate's debut and she has had because i checked on instagram um at least one very well attended successful event having that under her under her belt um do you have you tried to read reviews and other stuff because i think that can be really traumatic for an author um <laughs> I always recommend you don't read them, but um, you probably can't resist it. I do. I I don't mind um, reading the critical reviews because they're very thoughtful. 
So I find even when there's something they're criticizing about the book, um, as long as it's they've read the book in good faith and um, are approaching it with an open mind, I usually get something out of that. I think the reviews have been, the critical reviews have been largely very positive, which is nice. Um, and my team actually rounds those up and sends them to me. So um, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't go hunting for them. Um, the, the things that I think are a little dicier are the more informal reader reviews, like the Goodreads and the Instagram things. And I try to avoid those, but we're in this kind of strange era where people will tag you in their own middling review of your book. So that's always kind of an odd moment. The flip side of that is people will tag you in their nice reviews. um, And I've gotten to connect with a lot of readers uh, that I probably wouldn't have otherwise who, who really enjoyed the book. Um, So it cuts both ways. I try not to take it too much to heart. I don't, I didn't think you can because ultimately, you know, this is your story and a lot of reviews tend to drift towards, you know, this is the way I would have told this story or my story or something. But I only ask that because I have seen, especially new authors, really upset sometimes by, um, you know, I would avoid the Amazon ones at all costs because they often relate to the price of the book or the slow delivery and have absolutely nothing to do, you know, with the book itself. But anyway, it sounds like, you know, you've got a healthy attitude towards all this. Now, having said that, I will say that I'm possibly the last person who should be talking to you about this book. And I say that because I have never been on Reddit. I don't do any social media whatsoever. I'm 83. And therefore, I am so far distanced from a generation that really is on the internet and lives a very digital life. So, you know, I can't really appraise it with any authority. So I read it for the story uh, rather than, um, you know, any sort of appraisal of why she went down rabbit holes. And it's probably important to discuss first, what what is the rabbit hole in question here? So uh, the title rabbit hole, I think I wanted to go in two directions with it. We use it now referencing Alice in Wonderland, obviously talking about this sort of bottomless internet, um, you know, lines of inquiry that you can pursue. And that is across a lot of different social media platforms and websites where you can just lose a lot of time pursuing these kind of strange questions you didn't even know you had, or maybe you don't have, um, so that was part of it. And obviously, um, in this case, Teddy is getting sort of increasingly sucked into the world of conspiracy theories around her sister's disappearance online. Um, there's also an image early on in the book of an actual Warren, like an actual rabbit hole um, in that she remembers from childhood in her backyard. And that was... Um, something that I had growing up, we had these actual rabbit holes. So every time people talk about rabbit holes, I think of those rabbit holes. Um, And like Teddy, my experience of them was my dad warning us, you know, not to touch the bunnies or the mother wouldn't come back and they'd starve. And that image also, um, I think, is so apropos for Teddy, who is 
sees kind of loss and death everywhere she goes because of her experiences and um, is kind of living in this this perpetual fear of abandonment, you know, with her sister leaving and not getting any closure, her father dying by suicide, um, that people keep kind of not coming back for her. And she's caught between childhood and adulthood, kind of in a state of paralysis. So that was the idea behind the title was to try to join those two things that are really only linked by the fact that, you know, they're both rabbit holes. Well, no, I think I think rabbit hole is something that I hear often now in conversation. And, you know, it isn't necessarily, I mean, you know, I've talked to authors researching historical work and all, and, you know, we all talk about falling down, you know, research, research rabbit holes. Um, as you say, you don't even know you have a question. I just read one about Lady Hester Stanhope, and I didn't even know, you know, some of the characters that appeared in the book. So, you know, you want to look them up and it's actually destructive to reading to, you know, to read with your phone near you, because when you see something like that, you go, oh, wait, you know, who's that? And then off you go. And you're right. You do fall down a rabbit hole. Yeah. That um, phenomenon too, just in conversation, you'll be having a conversation with someone and maybe neither of you can recall a certain name or there's disagreement around a fact. And rather than just move past it in the conversation or rack your memory everyone will take out their phones and look it up and then we're on some wikipedia page everything gets kind of derailed so it yeah it is an interesting phenomenon the way we all are so reliant on having not just like our email and social media but just any information that you need so that you are never not you're never in a state of of kind of wondering about something you can just immediately connect to it and then connect to something else and all of a sudden you're down this sort of tangential path. Yeah. I, really must. I have to say, however, as a person who, as I'm aging, my short-term memory is not what it used to be. Um, when I'm doing events at the bookstore, everybody's kind of gotten used to it by now because what I can't remember titles or something. So, you know, I'll go and immediately people pull out their phone <laughs> and there's a chorus that arises, you know, that says, mm -hmm. wait, it's so-and-so. And so in that sense, it's really helpful. Although, you know, pretty funny, but I have to say that because I think it's rude for me to be holding a phone while I'm, you know, talking to an author. I've kind of gotten reliant on the idea that someplace that somebody in the audience is gonna gonna bail us out. Um, so you know, it, it can cut both ways. I do think it's bizarre, however, as you say, you know, increasingly to go out to a meal or go somewhere and and everybody's on their phone. They're not actually talking to each other, um, you know, or or you go to the movies and it's really hard for people to put their phone down long enough to watch the movie. So I don't know what it is. Do you think we've all just become like compulsively attached to this communication device? Yeah, I mean, I, I try not to sound moralistic because I'm as addicted as anyone else, but I, I find it deeply troubling. I think we're very addicted to our phones. I lately find my, I think um, I was off social media for a really long time, didn't like it, joined back about a year ago uh, to promote the book, basically. Mm -hmm. So after we had sold the book um, and there's been a lot of nice things about being uh, on social media, you know, connecting with other writers and all kinds of opportunities that come up. But 
on a daily basis, I'm troubled by my own inability to be without my phone. I like, it feels like an addiction, like an itchiness, you know, if I don't know where my phone is, um, I'm like, oh, you know, what if someone's trying to reach me and they almost never are. Um, it's fine for me to be unreachable for periods of time, but, uh, yeah, it's, it has felt, I have felt at least increasingly bad about that as, um, I've been back on Instagram and Twitter, specifically the social media stuff, I think feeds that sense that you need to be plugged in all the time or you're missing something. No, and people expect, you know, instant response. So I find if I leave the house accidentally without my phone, I feel naked. You know, there's this sort mm -hmm. of incipient sense of panic. And I can also say, because I've done quite a lot of it lately, that you can't travel if you don't have a phone. Yeah. It is almost impossible now to navigate any kind of travel system without and you know even in restaurants i read a hilarious line in a book recently um it was somebody went out you know to a regular hamburger joint because they said they got tired of going to places where you had a qr code you had to scan and figure out the menu or you ordered beer flights on your phone you know mm -hmm. before you went and so it, it's actually crept even further into you know into our ordinary life but let's go back to teddy because teddy we're we're reading this story largely inside Teddy's head, right? And it's not a good place to be, as you say. She's she's suffered a lot of loss. Now, as a crime reader, I have to say that the first alert um, that would go on in the ordinary mystery reader's mind was, did her father actually commit suicide? Because you know that's that's a kind of a Kickstarter for an awful lot of novels. You know, was it really? a suicide mm -hmm. so we could at least talk about that because it happens at the outside of the book is he really a suicide is he really dead um I think one thing I wanted to do with Mark's death was to kind of contrast it with Angie's right so at the outset of the book Angie's been gone for 10 years uh and that kind of grief that the family is experiencing is so interesting to me because there's just no closure at some point they just um, either give up hope or they don't. And Teddy talks in the first couple pages about being envious um, that her mother gets to identify her dad's body, that that knowing, that kind of concrete knowing that they have with him, that he is dead, that, you know, um, Claire actually gets to ID him, felt really important. So in, in my mind, um, and I think this is also the problem with writing suspense sometimes is you know the story so well, you can't see all the places where there, you know, um, is suspense or isn't suspense. But in my mind, yeah, Mark's suicide, he, he is definitely gone. And, um, and at least, you know, I think we can say confidently has taken his own life. The reasons for that are a bit murkier. Like the motivation behind it, I think, is more the question um, at the outset of the book. Like what has, why now? Um, and what has pushed him to this point? And that, I think, is one of the things that Teddy is exploring. Well, grief, you know, echoes heavily throughout this book. And, you know, not knowing about Angie and the grief of losing a child, those are all things that are really hard for anybody you know to survive so we can we can think that perhaps that dad is just you know spiral down and can't deal with it anymore 
Um, where where does he commit suicide and where does this book take place? Because landscape, I think, is such an important element in a book. You know, oftentimes it becomes a character in its own right. So the book is set um, in coastal Maine. And I think that was that felt also really important. I uh, grew up in New Jersey, but spent a lot of time in New England. That part of the world felt appropriate for this kind of story. I wanted a kind of gothic setting, something that would um, echo sort of all my favorite classic gothic novels. So the weather and um, just the kind of old infrastructure, he drives off like a one of the last remaining covered bridges in Maine. Um, yeah. And Teddy's proximity both to the woods and the sea being sort of both powerful um, associations for her. Uh, but also Maine has such a specific and distinct flavor. You know, Mainers are very proud of their state. They're kind of fiercely independent. Um, they're a little bit idiosyncratic. So thinking about Teddy's family, you know, I, in the book, um, she's from this sort of waning political dynasty. And uh, having her family in Maine, I think, also added some complexity to that. Like, what would that look like? What is their role in this community? Um, and kind of exploring the the downward mobility that is happening to Teddy's family in kind of a dramatic fashion, but also to the entire region, which is being um, afflicted by, you know, changing industry and uh, opiates and things like that. Maine has been a really hot spot in recent months for crime fiction. Yeah. Tess Harrison, The Spy Coast, Paul Doyron has written all kinds of books about Maine. Luann Rice, um, David Baldacci just wrote a really interesting book called The Itch about Maine. Michael Carrito has an island off the coast of Maine and a book in July. Um, so obviously Maine calls to the crime writer for a variety of reasons, some of which you've just enunciated. Um, it's also a border state which I think, you know, we often forget that Maine is like, you know, it's a border state with Canada, but it also, the Atlantic Ocean is a border. Um, the geography of Maine can be quite different, whether you're inland, you know, along the rivers or in the forests or over on the coast. Um, and it's, it's attracted a great many writers, not just Stephen King, um, but, you know, quite a lot of them. And, and I often wonder, you know, to what degree that kind of landscape draws writers not to, I mean to set their story but a lot of them just live there but for living yeah Lily King Lynn Steger Strong yeah um, are all kind of in the Portland area I, I think it is appealing I mean I think part of the reason also why I set the book in Maine is I was so drawn to it even as a child mm. it seems sort of mystical um like you're saying you know as as far north as you can go um and desolate, um, something sort of moody about it. So uh, it did appeal. And I think it, you know, it appeared in a lot of the books that I read as a kid as well um, as a setting. So it has that sort of literary cachet. Certain states do, I think, right? Have more. Oh, I agree. I agree with that. It also, you know, if you, for example, have been to Bar Harbor where, because I've done a number of cruises, I'm endlessly in Bar Harbor. Um, there's an Acadia National Park, which is beautiful, but it also, that area became a playground 
for a lot of rich people in the you know gilded age and earlier part of the 20th century just like northern minnesota also became and in canada you know a place for urban people with money to go and you know build log cabin but they were like gigantic log cabins and you know read a lead a sort of rural life so i find that really and there's a lot of artists in maine too so it obviously fosters creativity um and you know that part is is nifty um, I read a, a line in a review, um, which I thought was interesting, Kate, which goes, rabbit hole is a prime example of what happens when you allow yourself to be waylaid by something you don't really want the answers to. Do you think that that would, to some degree, apply here? Yeah, I think that's exactly Teddy's problem. Um, in many ways, you know, she's pursuing this investigation. It's been 10 years. She hasn't really been looking into what happened to her sister. Her father has. And now that he's gone, I think it's a way of forestalling grief um, and holding on to both of them. The minute she lets go of the investigation, now she doesn't only lose her sister, but her dad. This this kind of deranged, homegrown investigation that he had been participating in by taking up that mantle, she maintains a connection to him. So he dies so suddenly, he leaves behind this mess and her only choice is basically to throw it away or to embrace it. Um, and I think by digging into this, she doesn't quite have to let him go, right? Like, well, maybe if I just figure out what he was looking for, uh, but I don't, yeah, I don't know that she wants the answers there. I'm, she's, she's obviously looking for them. And I think part of her belief, she'd be comforted by them. Um, but right from the outset of the book, I think if you're paying attention, the book is pretty clear eyed about the fact that if somebody is gone for 10 years, you're really not going to find anything pleasant. Like you, you will either find nothing at all, or you'll find something very unpleasant. There's kind of no happy ending, um, for those kind of cases. I think that's a kind of a pipe dream. Um, and that not knowing space, the like eternal investigation kind of chasing her own tail is how she meets Mickey and then is able to also forge like a pseudo sisterly relationship with Mickey. Um, but it all, it all feels like avoidance. So I think that that line, um, rings pretty true to me. You know, there's, there's, a lot of true crime being published at the moment or cold cases or true crime is the basis for um for crime fiction and one of the one of the tropes in it is that regardless of how long the person has been gone the family won't ever achieve closure until you know there's a body or mm -hmm. there's some sort of answer i think it's the forever not knowingness is yeah. the is the hardest part of that but the other thing, and I've talked to a lot of authors about this recently, is that the old um, the old sort of private eye or police procedural, um, you know, there was a huge thing in the 80s and the 90s uh, with um, women's sleuth movement, it was called. You know, it was Sue Grafton and Sarah Peretsky and so forth. And uh, men had previously had the private eye thing locked up. So we had Chandler and Hammett and Ross McDonald and all the rest of it. Then the women came up and they did investigations and all. And 
And of course, all of them had to have a hook to an actual policeman or somebody in law enforcement because private eyes don't have any power of arrest. But, you know, that worked out. Um, and they were they were to some degree linear, you know, because there'd be an instigating incident and then the whole thing would move forward. But what I'm what we're finding now is that because the private eye has largely become a digital thing and, you know, gumshoe doesn't even apply anymore. What we're getting increasingly in crime fiction are podcasters and especially mm -hmm. true crime podcasters who are taking over for Kinsey and VI and, you know, um, Blue Archer and so forth. And they have that additional um, advantage in that they there's a sort of crowdsourcing thing that mm -hmm. happens, you know, with, with this deal. So do you, you know, were you attracted to that idea of, you know, Reddit and crowdsourcing and all the rest of it. If if one person can't find answers, maybe many people working together can. Yeah, it, I mean, the, some of these Reddit communities have actually contributed to yeah. these cold cases. Um, there's that show that I think it used to run on cable, and then Netflix revived it called Unsolved Mysteries. And uh, at the end of the episode, they kind of encourage you to do your own digging. And a couple of Reddit communities have made progress on those cases that appeared on those episodes. So there's this strange sort of ecosystem between traditional media, online sleuthing, um, and you hear about all the cases that go well, right? You hear about like when Redditors contribute positively to a case. I think probably for every one case where that happens, there's a hundred cases where there are people on Reddit just wildly speculating, just saying any last thought that came into their head, sort of, um, it would be considered irresponsible if they had any credentials, but they don't, right? There's, it's so democratic that you're not a PI, you're, um, you're just somebody with a keyboard. So that is was just so interesting to me. I think from a, a fiction writing perspective was um, this community that is super anonymous. There's really no barrier to entry. Occasionally families really do leverage this kind of interest for good. Like they will um, use this kind of interest in a case, especially in a case like Angie's where there's a young white woman who's missing, very sort of media friendly. Um, but there is also the dark side of that where it curdles into something else. Um, there was a case last year with um, at the University of Idaho where four people were killed. I don't know if you remember this case, but- Very sadly, and I'm, I'm interested to tell you that I did James Patterson's book launch Monday night, and he's actually writing a book about it. Is and he? Writing it before- the trial. And wow. I, I am wondering from a legal, because I used to, to be in law, I'm wondering if that is going to be a derailing sort of a thing, because now it's going to be, if in fact it comes out before this case goes to trial, what kind of effect that's going to have on jury selection and right. on the jury and so forth. And I'm also interested that that small community destroyed the house which again is an interesting thing from a legal standpoint, because what if the jury wanted to see it? Right. You know, they're heading off. I'm sure what they're heading off is true crime tourism. 
you yes. know, they didn't want it there so that, you know, people could, um, because people are drawn to disaster sites, mm -hmm. whatever. But, um, you know, the fact that, that everything is speeding up, you know, that we all have to have this immediacy, you know, find answers, feedback, the whole bit. I can't imagine that that situation actually could have arisen maybe 20 years ago. Um, and so I didn't debate the ethics of it with Jim because, you know, that's that's not my that's not my province. But it did lead me to wonder what kind of ramifications actually writing about it, even in a novel, uh, although I'm not sure it's a novel. I'm not sure that it's not nonfiction. I didn't pursue it to that degree. What what that might have in the real world. And where we're actually having, you know, a debate about whether the president of the United States is above all the law by being virtue of the president. Therefore, he's really the king or a dictator, you know. Um, it, I, I find much of the world doesn't make sense at the moment. Yeah, it can feel that way. Um, and things are, like you said, moving so rapidly. And I think the rise of the internet also contributed to this sort of depersonalization where we don't, I think in true crime, you see this a lot where people are consuming these stories as though they are fictional. The appeal of them is that they are real, but we treat the subjects like they are not real in a way. And I think with um, the University of Idaho thing, some of the online sleuths involved in that pointed to one of the victims and um, posited a theory that it was a murder-suicide and he was responsible for all the deaths. And that ended up not being true, um, obviously, but it reached his family, right? That 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 um, there was some percentage of the population that that was appealing to. There was really never any scientific basis for that theory, but it was appealing almost in like a narrative way. Like, well, wouldn't that be a twist if actually one of the four dead in the house was was the murderer? Um, and that felt slightly perverse to me. And also, yeah, all of these things, I just think, I, I, I don't think I'm here to like make any kind of moral judgment about it, but they, this moment did feel just so kind of fictionally rich um, to think about the way that so many kind of crime tropes have invaded our thinking about real life. Like we think about crimes now often, I think in terms of fictional tropes um, that don't actually map, map on to real life experiences. I totally agree with you. And I do think that the pervasiveness of the twisty thriller um, that has happened really since Gone Girl. Um, and that was what I was saying. It used to be, you know, you could rely on Kinsey or VI or something. You know, you yes. never suspected that the narrator of the story was lying to you or was a fake or that the things they discovered were not true. But now we seem to be living in a world where you can't trust anybody in a book, including the narrator, which has come up in two books out this month. I won't mention what they are, but um, you know, if you can't even trust the person telling you the story, um, then it seems to me that those issues of, of not trusting or always looking for the twist or not believing anything is actually what it is, um, 
I mean, I, I read something, the Arizona Republic has done some really good work lately, which is surprising because it didn't used to be what I would call an investigative newspaper, but it's really come on. And there's something called realrawnews.com in which they have propagated the idea that our governor was hanged at Guantanamo, uh, that she has a twin who doesn't exist, who's actually running the state, um, that I'm trying to remember all the various just completely insane things and that every one of these is basically just a money machine for the guy running it because every one of them has a tag about, you know, support our real journalism here, which of course is just, you know, it's all nonsense. But what amazes me is that people do that. They do actually send money. They do read it. And they actually, the whole thing came up because some reader wrote to somebody in the paper and said, you know, why are you lying to us? Because, you know, Katie Hobbs has, you know, been dead since September 19th, you know, hanged at Guantanamo or something. And and clearly that person actually believed realrawnews.com. Yeah. So what is it if we all become so completely gullible or is there no real fact-checking reliable fact-checking available anymore? Do we all assume that everyone is lying to us? Yeah, I think, I mean, that was the appeal of Reddit too, is it is sort of the, I mean, I use Reddit. I think it's, it's a platform. It's as a platform, it's pretty neutral. There's some good things you can do with Reddit. There's some less good things you can do with Reddit. Um, but it, it does seem to be such a fertile breeding ground for that sort of thinking too. Like I, I was obsessed with um, the the QAnon people who started waiting in um, Dallas for, I think they thought JFK was going to return or something. I don't know. It was so convoluted um, and I couldn't quite follow the logic of it. And part of me admires the creativity. I mean, that's the wrong way of putting it, but that that um you're so willing to make these leaps and believe the world is is filled with um such wild surprises you know people have secret twins and and maybe life is closer to a telenovela than you actually thought um but i do think it it does it feels like a departure from a, an older mode of of thinking and experiencing the world um and I, I think it does have implications for, you know, it, crime is one thing and, and it's a genre, um, but all crime is just, is some family's personal tragedy. Politics, you know, has stakes. So this kind of magical thinking that has just sort of pervaded all aspects of life. Um, yeah, I, I'm interested in the ramifications for that on on actual people you know fictionally on kind of like a micro level on a family on a um on someone who maybe is being hounded because they're being accused of being their own uh twin you know how do you disprove that even i mean that that is fascinating. that's it see it's really hard to disprove a negative i mean right. you, you know, it's a huge problem we have this weird thing here called the gilbert goons which probably won't mean anything to you but um, a bunch of uh, attacks on um, basically high school students and somehow or other the Gilbert Police Department, even though one of them, not the police, but one of the high school attacks actually killed a boy, could not seem to put it together until once again, the newspaper got involved. And, and the statement from the police chief was something about, well, we, we had these events, but nobody 
specifically said Gilbert Goons. So we didn't connect them. And I thought to myself, these are cops. And they're not clearly mystery readers or crime mm -hmm. readers, because the first thing that a crime reader would go is, oh, look, there have been four or five similar attacks in the same area and the same kind of people. Maybe there's a common thread here. But yeah. the police couldn't seem to arrive at that. And now they've been shamed into action by investigative journalists, you know, and they're running around putting stuff together that was right there in front of them all this time. I mean, I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed. I also love the lead reporter who's been a friend for years and has wanted to write a book. And I've decided, um, which I will inform him of soon, that he's finally found his subject. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. he had to be able to write a real blistering book about the Gilbert Goons, which in itself is a great title, right? But yeah. it just, um, I mean, even the cops are, are, you know, confused and maybe magically thinking. I don't know, it's hard. Hard to say. I have one more thing I wanted to ask you because um, there, there's been some discussion um, in various reviews that I have read. I never read reviews till I've read the book and made up my own mind, but then it's kind of interesting occasionally to see what people have to say. Um, and one, one person, a reader, said that rather than it being a dark and twisted debut, it's really a slow burn character study about grief. You might have read that review. You know, what do you think? Is that, you know, is do you think that that writing about grief is really the dynamic moving this story? Um, I think that's fair. I mean, I I don't think I have that thing that a lot of mystery writers have, that kind of innate mind for a puzzle. Um, I was talking with uh, Nishida Parekh last night, who has a book coming out this month called The Night of the Storm. Just read it, yep. And she is a coder by um, by day. That's her day job. And she talked about, you know, working in software and um, that helping her write her debut because her job is kind of to puzzle things out. And that's also how she approached the, the book. Um, and I definitely didn't approach Rabbit Hole that way. I think the characters, the language, all of those things come first. Um, and then the the genre piece is is a container. It's a story to explore those ideas. Um, and I think the the thrillers that I love are also similarly interested in characters and ideas um, and maybe not as plot heavy. So I I do think that's fair. I mean, I think there are kind of uh, different sorts of thrillers. There are the, you know, the kind where someone is getting a secret message and receiving, you know, new clues every other page. Um, and Rabbit Hole isn't doing that necessarily. I think for me, the the thriller of it is very much connected to the emotional undercurrent and really... Um, the question of what happened to Angie, that's motivating Teddy. But I think for me as the writer, what was motivating me is the question of what's going to happen to Teddy. Like what, how is she going to survive or not survive this ordeal, depending on whatever she finds out. Um, that was the sort of, that was my, that was the driving force for me. That's the the thriller for me as the writer is, um, she seems like she's in grave peril uh, and not necessarily the cold case thing, which I think is 
is motivating her. I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that is kind of how I think about it. But those reviews, I, yeah, I think that's fair. That's fair to say. It's not. But it's if you not, wrote, if you in the book as you just described it then, and we obviously aren't going to discuss what it would be, but then you really do have to deliver um, answers. You know, what did happen to Angie and what, you know, we, we're going to accept that dad died. So we're going to rule out that, you know, was it really a suicide? So what did happen to Angie and, you know, what, what's Teddy's path? But, you know, everyone wants to slap labels on books anymore um, because, you know, it's online book selling and all the rest of it. We don't do that at the point in time. We have a file called fiction and, you know, it all goes in there. And the truth is, you know, you could have written this as fiction. It didn't necessarily have to be a thriller. So did you always want it to be a thriller or a crime novel? I mean, you didn't have to do that. You could have written it as, you know, literary fiction or whatever that means. I'm not even sure what literary fiction means. So, I mean, I think I, I did. I wrote it as, um, I wrote it as literary fiction. I was incorporating the things I read both. I read a lot of literary fiction. I read a lot of crime fiction. Um, but when I sit down to write, I just think of it in terms of story. I don't, I definitely don't think about it in terms of how is the book going to be sold that, um, that just feels like it's not my job and that's, uh, for my agent and my marketing team to figure out. So yeah, there, there's definitely a world where, um, it could be under a different banner, I think in a bookstore, just under the banner of literary fiction or, um, you know, it could have, could have been, uh, marketed differently, but I don't know that that would change the story. Okay. I, I think we lost, we lost Barbara here. Um, I'm going to let her in, okay. um, but we can do a, a Q and a here, um, while we wait. Um, we do have some questions in the comments. Um, Robin still asked, how are you celebrating your debut? Um, I was in New York for the launch of the book, which was really fun. Uh, I live in LA now, but I'm um, from New York or, or from Jersey. And then I lived in New York when I was writing the book. So I celebrated. Um, I saw a lot of old friends. They came out to PNT Knitwear. We did a couple of events. Um, the day the book came out, I didn't have any events. Um, my husband came with me. We signed some books at a bookstore, and then we went to see the movie American Fiction, which was actually sort of perfect for pub day. And just uh, like um, it's a you know satire of the publishing industry, so it was a, just sort of a reminder not to take it so seriously. I think. Oh, oh sorry, Barbara, I think you're muted. Sorry, there we are. I have no idea what happened. All of a sudden, you were talking, and and my screen just went kerpop. So, did you come in, Jacob, and rescue us? Yeah, I was just going to read some questions here. Great. All right. I'm sorry, Kate. I, no, it's, no worries. It's so cold here that Cox, our cable provider, is not used to it being below freezing in Arizona, and has really screwed up our internet connectivity. So, uh -huh. my apologies. Anyway, it was time to move to questions, anyhow. So, thank you for keeping going while I finished. Uh, we have one more by Robin. Um, what does your writing day look like? Are you a pen and paper or computer only? I am computer only. 
when I teach, I make my students write on pen and paper. I know all of the neuroscience behind writing on pen and paper. I think it's great. I just don't do it out of laziness and expediency. I'm also extraordinarily disorganized. I know I would lose my drafts if they weren't on the computer. My writing day, um, I also don't have any kind of cool routine. I have um, a four-year-old and a one-year-old, so it's very kind of do it when you can. Um, there's no designated area. It's mostly on the couch late at night. Um, it's, yeah, it's nothing aspirational, sadly, <laughs> but, uh, I don't, I do think the further along I get, um, I, cause I used to really consume all of the information. Like what did all the, what did all the writers I love? Like, what does their day look like? They wake up early in the morning and write a thousand words. I'm going to do that. You know, I think you can try all the things and then ultimately you settle into some version that that works for you. I, I try not to be prescriptive about routines either. Have you always wanted to be a writer? Um, and do you have any advice for um, aspiring young authors? I uh, loved, always loved to write. I, I did an event in New Jersey last weekend and my second grade teacher came out, which was kind of amazing. And um, she was talking to my mom about you know, she used to run this writing workshop in second grade that I loved. And they were both saying how it's easy in hindsight, I guess, to say like, oh, and, you know, we knew then that she was going to be a writer. Uh, I think, I think this is true for a lot of people too. You're kind of your purest version of yourself sometimes at that really young age. And then for a while, I kind of abandoned it. Like I was good at writing, but I, um, didn't think I was going to be a writer. It didn't seem practical. So I pursued a lot of other different career paths. And then in college, um, I took a creative writing class that was meant to just be kind of like a for fun thing for me. And it, uh, yeah, changed the whole course of things. I kind of went all in on it at that point. Um, but I still, until very, very recently, hesitated to call myself a writer. Um, it It just felt like too, too, too much to want or ask for. Um, so yeah, I, I have always loved writing and loved reading and books, um, but didn't believe necessarily it was something that was possible until very recently. So may we assume that you actually are going to be working on or are currently working on a second book? Yeah, I um, finished a draft of a second book. Publishing is very slow, as I'm sure you know. So uh, I have not, you know, we locked the the copy of this book about a year and a half ago. And in that time, I did a draft of a new book. It's very messy right now, but um, I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to digging into some edits once the publicity slows down for Rabbit Hole. Now, in a way, you're really fortunate because it used to be that if somebody published a first book and had forever to write it and nobody even knew about it, that was all good. And then if it did okay, the next thing you knew, um, another book was expected within a year and the writer was under unbelievable pressure to try to come up with a second book. And I do think that what you're talking about, um, this process is much kinder in there because it gave you time while you still had, before the book was published, people still didn't know you were actually a writer. Right. You had time to work on a second book without um, 
I mean, there's a really famous incident, I won't name names, of a writer who was so successful with the first book, they ended up stealing a plot from a real life case and wound up getting sued and all. It was just really a mess. But that kind of pressure was so severe. Yeah. So I, I'm glad you escaped that. Right, Jacob, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to drive you away. Um, was there anything else? Uh, that's it. That was it. Wonderful. Well, it's really been a pleasure talking to you, Kate. Congratulations on the publication of Rabbit Hole, your debut. Thank you. And for those of you watching, um, due to glitches I won't even get into, um, we're going to be sending copies to Kate to sign uh, probably first of next week. We don't have them immediately in the store. But I can also say that the first printing of this book sold out, which is part of the reason there was this complication. So you might want to order one and just be patient for a little while while we deliver it. And thank you very much, Kate, for agreeing to do that and for coming today. Um, good luck to you. Thank very you. This exciting. was a pleasure. It was a lot well, of fun. We love, we love joining in in your debut. It's uh, it's always so much fun, as I said, to introduce readers to a new author. Jacob, thank you very much. I will see you anon. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks, Jacob. A pleasure. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.